Welcome back. This is Dr. K, still here from Mark Steiner on The Mark Steiner Show. We turn our attention to a conversation on mindfulness and criminal justice. According to the website wildmind.org, prison life, as you can imagine, is quite stressful. Inmates are frequently cut off from family and friends. They are thrust among people who may be exploitative or abusive. They're subject to a regime where they have very little or no control over their own lives. Prison life is also constantly noisy and filled with arbitrary and petty mistreatment. There's a lot of pushback against this in terms of teaching meditation in prison, focusing on mindfulness, and creating peace-filled spaces. We're going to talk a bit about that. Joining me are Dr. Maricela Gomez, a physician, a community activist, and author of Race, Class, Power, and Organizing in East Baltimore, Rebuilding Abandoned Communities in America. Welcome back, Dr. Gomez. Thank you. We're also joined by Chris Wilson. He's a motivational speaker, a former prisoner, an owner and founder of the Barclave Investment Corporation, and owner of House of Da Vinci, which is a high-end furniture restoration, repair, and upholstery company. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. And I also want to note, Chris, that you're going to be speaking on a panel uh, on restoring peace and safety paths to community justice here in Baltimore tomorrow night, uh, Wednesday, August 24th, 6.30 p.m., 2100 East Madison Street in Baltimore. If people want more information, where can they go? I think they can go to, um, well, we posted it on, on Facebook, so I'm not really sure of the site, but I know it's on restorative peace and safety, mindfulness, um, and it's at 2100 uh, Madison. Okay. But I'm not sure of the website or okay. where it's at. But. but if they just put in Restoring Peace and Safety, and we'll look to see if we can put a link on it off of our yeah. web page. Uh, Dr. Gomez, let me start with you. Exactly what is mindfulness and criminal justice? How do these two pieces come together? Uh, great question. Uh, so mindfulness is this ability to uh, remember, to keep something in mind. What is it that we're keeping in mind? We're keeping in mind... Um, that we're in the present moment, uh, that we're able to stop and maybe take a breath and be a little bit more clear in what we're doing in that moment. Um, it's also this ability to find some stillness and some calm so that whatever is going on in that moment, we're responding to it presently. We're not responding to it from something from the past. You know, we get triggers all the time um, that touch buttons from something from before. Uh, we we seldom respond to things from the moment that we're in. We're responding to it from something that's triggered from the past. Mindfulness allows us to be present. But mindfulness, which is um, a, a contemplative practice, if you will, has been around for thousands of years. Um, some con contributed to Buddhism, but it's really been part of the Christian, uh, um, the, the way Christians practice as, as well. You, in the Christian community, we call it contemplative practice. In the Buddhist community, we call it the practice of mindfulness. And what it is is also maintaining an ethic of how we want to be in the world. And so we're remembering that ethic of way, the way we want to be. So it's not just in, in the way that we've secular, secularized mindfulness in America and much of the world these days. Um, we've looked at, at mindfulness as a way to come back to the present moment, to be aware so we make better decisions. In corporate America, that takes a very different effect um, because we're coming back to the moment so we can maybe be more productive <laughs> for that bottom line. And I'd like to bring us back to the discussion of where uh, mindfulness really comes from, which is that it's a remembering an ethic, a way of being, a way of being generous, a way of being peaceful, a way of nonviolence, a way to make sure we don't cause harm to others and nor to ourselves. And so when, we're in that mo when we're, we stop in that moment to take a breath, that breath should really bring us back not only to what's in front of me right now, but it should 
make us remember that we want to act from a place of ethic, that we come from that place, that how we act in that moment is advised. We're remembering that we want to maintain those ethic, those principles that will really result in a better way of being, maybe being a little bit more kind and humane in society. Criminal justice, how does it connect? Well, as you mentioned, in the prison system, we have, um, there's a lot of challenge and difficulty. Um, there's a real difficulty to find peace, um, not only within the system, but in the police department and the way the police, as we know, um, that we're dealing with now in Baltimore and many cities, uh, interact with our citizens uh, in the courtroom, the way lawyers uh, interact with their clients, um, even in the, the way youth are treated in school. Um, how do we maintain a disposition and a way of being so that we can be present to what's in front of us mm -hmm. and not bring what is the past into what we're doing right there, which can really, really, really cause harm if we're not aware of what we're doing. Well, then, Chris, I want to ask you, I mean, and thank you, Dr. Gomez, for kind of outlining mindfulness, mm -hmm. also connecting it to what happens in Christianity, which I think some of our callers can connect with, and also what happens in Buddhism. So, Chris, why is it important, given what I said about the prison system, why is it important to practice the mindfulness, and what does it do for the inmates? I think it's, it's, it's definitely important because, I mean, especially as, as uh, African-American men, and being and being incarcerated, so I, I'll speak from from my personal experience. You know, you look at um, around in, this pr in the prison, there's so many uh, you know brothers that's locked up there for a long time. You know, getting treated a certain kind of way by correctional officers. We see on the news, um, you know, brothers being shot, and so it's important for us to kind of you know understand what's going on, but also think and behave in a way that you know allows us to survive. And so for my personal experience, it was reading, uh, exercising, uh, opening up in therapy, mm -hmm. and planning. And so when you start doing those things, you start thinking about what's important and also giving back, too. So you start thinking about what's important. It just allows you to think more, um, I don't know, just be more critical about, like, what's going on around you and making smarter decisions. And that's something, like, you know, I've been practicing the, um, those things for about 20 years. Now, as a former prisoner, how long were you in prison? So I was in prison. I, I went to prison as a juvenile at 17. So I was sentenced to natural life. So I was in prison for 16 and a half years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so Almost half my life. I mean, when you say natural life, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that caused pause there. Yeah. But, but I want to find out in this, in this process for you, right. um, at what point did you start with, with this practice of mind? Even if you didn't know that's what you were doing at right. that moment. Because one of the things that that, that website I mentioned, wildmind.org, said mm -hmm. that prisoners early on, with all the noise, begin to ask themselves three questions. How did I end up here? Right? <laughs> right. Where did I go wrong? Right. And how can I change? Right. And, and that seems to be an entry point. When did you kind of move into this mindfulness state, you think? So for me, it was as soon as I got there. Well, about a year in. Okay. So, so I very was, early on. Right. So early on. So when I was told that I would have to grow old and die in prison, I asked those three <laughs> questions. Like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just 18. I'm 17. Right. It's like, all right, so how did I get here? And it's a matter of just thinking about, you know, the, the last question about, like, how, how can I change is the most difficult thing. Because everyone, like, they, they want to, right. but they don't necessarily know how to. And so that was the biggest challenge for me. And it was just a matter of, you know, going into therapy and just opening up and talking about what I've been through and just trying to find people around me in my environment in a crazy environment that were that were positive and just approaching them. It was, you know, awkward for me. These were folks that, I, you know, I didn't know. And it's like, you know, I want to turn my life around. You seem like 
you're really good at math. Can you can you teach me some math? Or, <laughs> or you know, you seem like you're really good at, at chess, you know, and just started surrounding myself with people like that. And then, you know, you know, my life just changed. Now, Dr. Gomez, um, you know, the mindfulness, I, I've tried it uh, because I, <laughs> I, I have. I mean, I teach at a Jesuit school, and they're often into this notion of, you know, taking a moment, thinking right. through, mm-hmm. being intentional, doing some metacognitive reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard for me in a quiet space in my car. It's hard for me when I'm in the quietness of my bedroom. I can only imagine what it's like in prison, where mm. things are just constantly in motion. So can you kind of explain just the process of mindfulness? Like, what does it even consist of? Sure, and I'm really, I'm really, really happy you talk about the, the needing to be still, because mindfulness uh, is a form of meditation, and we think of meditation as being still or having to sit somewhere quietly for a moment uh, or more moments. Well, uh, the practice of mindfulness is really trying to be present with what is. And so you, we have mindful eating. We have mindful walking. And so for those who might find sitting still for 10 minutes or 30 minutes, uh, maybe that's not the kind of meditation you might want to practice. Um, you can come back to your breath when you're eating. So um, in the tradition that I practice in, which is a tradi- tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh and Plum Village tradition, um, he's a Vietnamese monk um, who was a uh, activist and a, a peace warrior uh, during the Vietnamese War. Um, mindfulness developed within the space of the war in Vietnam. As a Buddhist monk, he was trying to figure out how the the villagers, how the social workers could maintain peace in this very difficult situation. So in the midst of war, this monk figured out that Mindfulness has to be something that we do every day. It, it can't be something on the couch. It can't be something on the cushion. And so this, this has developed what we call engaged, um, engaged mindfulness, meaning while you're walking, can you come back to your steps? Can you be present at y- as you're walking, one step on the, f- on the floor, on the ground, you're taking a breath or two in, uh, breathing in, I'm walking, one step, two step, three step, breathing out, I'm walking, one step, two step, three step. Just that mere moment of coming back to the body and mind being right there, present for each other. While we're eating, we can practice mindfulness. Am I aware of the food I'm putting in my mouth? Am I chewing my food or am I chewing my, the work and the thoughts I have to do in the next moment? Or am I chewing that argument I had um, with my sister or my partner <laughs> or my instructor because that's what we do when we right. eat. We're not present in the moment with what we're doing. Most of the time we're in the past with what we just did or what we got to do the next minute. When we're driving, can we use that red light? When we come to that red light, we're, we're fighting, I'm going to be late, da, da, da. Can we let that, mi- that red light be a bell of mindfulness? Mm-hmm. Just bring us back to that moment. Can we just take two breaths? The understanding is if we stop and take one breath, two breaths, three breaths, in any interaction, any interaction with a person, with a police officer, with an inmate, with a m- family member, with a loved one, with a flower, in that very moment, we have now come closer to being present with what is right there in front of us. And that is a practice of mindfulness. 
Now we, we have a tweet, uh, <laughs> Chris, a question <laughs> with right. this notion of mindfulness. Uh, but he wants to know is how do you practice this, this idea of mindfulness in a prison and people are in prison and they're up to this, all this anger right. and frustration. So, <laughs> That's a good you question. know, this notion of one breath, two breaths, which I think is great. How do you do it when stuff is falling down around you? I, I, think, I think it's exactly that. I mean, what comes to mind is uh, when I was in prison, like, we didn't have air conditioning. So, like, during the heat wave. Like and where, it, where were you in prison? Don't say Atlanta or Mississippi. No, I was in Maryland. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's no air conditioning. Like, didn't even know what that was. But it used to be so hot. And then it would pack us all into, like, the chow hall. And it would be, like, a few hundred of us. And we'd sit in there and just cook. And I would just Ooh. sit there. I would close my eyes, clothes drenched in sweat. And I would just take those deep breaths. And I would just thank this, all right, this is only, this, you know, of course it was 16 years of this, but I would just imagine just myself being free or imagine myself at a different place and taking those deep breaths. And, you know, it, I survived it. Now, people yeah. have this image of, of prison, Dr. Gomez. I kind of, I think of it on the continuum. On one side of the continuum, you have, you know, the Dr. King left from a Birmingham jail right. or, or Malcolm X, you know, <laughs> reading the dictionary. And on the other end of the continuum is scared straight, right? Yeah. All the stories you see about prison life. But really inside, do you believe that this notion of mindfulness really can help reduce anger and stress and frustration, uh, lack of patience that, mm -hmm. that people really deal with in having to deal with the routine that's the same thing every day, dealing with not having your freedom. Yes, I absolutely believe that the, the notion it can be, when put into practice is real and can transform any amount of anger. I mean, I myself have gone through my process where um, I had the black woman chip on my shoulder. I was one of the angriest persons that I would not want to be around now. You? I cannot believe it. I can. We're all confessing this morning. I yes, cannot. This is, uh, truth be told, and, and I know there. I have brothers and sisters right now listening, probably who are saying, "Uh huh, I know, uh huh." Um, but but to 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 have really been able to stop long enough to try to figure out where that anger is coming from. Now, in the, in the situation, no, I've never been in a prison situation. I've been in jail, um, but I've never been in a prison situation in such a way that you describe. But I, I, what I can share is that having read and talked to people who have been, who can say that no matter how difficult they have been, the situation have been in, when they could remember that What's happening right now is a control of my body. As long as I am aware that I have control of my mind, that everything that's happening around me, it, it doesn't have to control my mind. If I can maintain, and that's what this breeding practice, just like, just like Chris just described, is he was in control of his mind. All the physical situations around him was trying to basically break him down. But his mind was able to stay in, contr in control, and that's an awareness. That's a... That's a meditative practice. Um, when we talked last night, I said, I said, you know, what you describe and the way you've come through prison, that's mindfulness. Now, we, we may not have been calling it mindfulness right. then in prison, but that control, that ability to stop and be present and to be able to take care of what you need to take care of in order to maintain your integrity, that's what mindfulness is. I mean, we call it mindfulness because this is the word that we're using, but 
let's not confuse a label with a practice. Okay, I think that yeah. I think that's important. If you just joined us, I'm here with Dr. Gomez and Chris Wilson talking about mindfulness and, of course, what's happening in the prison system, criminal justice. If you want to join our conversation, perhaps you're someone who's come through that prison mass incarceration system and you practice mindfulness or you want to know how to practice this, give us a call at 410-319-8888. We have a call on the line, Lawrence Hurst. Good morning, Lawrence. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Um, this is just a troubling area for me because I listened to uh, the comments from the African-American uh, person who had spent 16 years incarcerated describing what to me is the modern-day torture chamber. And I think that as state officials, the governor, certainly he is responsible, but we put an enormous amount of money into our prison system. Matter of fact, we put enough money into the prison system to have them as luxury hotels, not as torture chambers, right. where the African-American is used as ATM machines, supplying him with toilet paper, all the uh, materials from our culture that supplies the prison. I'm sure they're making millions off of us and making millions off of human, the human body, using the human body as mm. their ATM machine. This is, yeah. well, this is... I mean, you talk about other prison systems over the world and war and all. I think that when we look at America and we look, and, uh, and an African-American can tell you they spent 16 years in prison and they described the conditions that that young gentleman just did, and we look at the tab of right. how much we're spending on it, somebody stealing. Yeah. That's all. And we need to trace the money and find out who's getting all who's getting paid. Thank Somebody's you. getting paid. Thank you so much, Lawrence. I definitely agree with that. So, Chris, just to try to wrestle with some of the things that Lawrence said, we know right. that the mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, is a money-making system for Absolutely. this country. Michelle Alexander in the New Jim Crow talks all about this. Right. But how does that, right, you know, wrestling with that big issue, how does that really play into trying to grapple with being there and being yeah. on the ground with it's, this? It's very difficult. I remember um, I read uh, – Michelle Alexander's book in prison. Actually, I read it like three times while, while I was in there, and it opened my eyes up to a lot of things in prison. Um, you know, just to, to make a 30-minute call, it's like $10 uh, in, in the prison, and the average person makes like $25 a month, and it's wait like you got to make a decision. Wait, wait a minute. To make a phone call in yeah. prison, it's like $10. $10. Yeah. Wow. So the average person makes $25 a month. You have to make a decision. Definitely need to get, you know, some hygiene products, wow. uh, maybe like a can of coffee, and then make a phone call, you wow. know. So and, and then you wonder why there's so many cell phones in prison. You can't even afford to make a call, and so so there was a lot of things. I remember, you know, going through all these things like stand up count. So they would come through and count at midnight, and pe you had people that had to get up and go to work at four o'clock in the morning. It didn't matter what you had to do. You had to wake up from your sleep and stand up, and they shine that light in your face just to make sure you were there. And if, and if they messed the count up, which they always did, you had to wake back up. And do it. So you had to go through years and years of this. And I remember just, you know, being stressed out. And I got a letter from my brother. My oldest brother said, you know, I know you feel like you lost everything. They've taken everything from you. And, you, you, you know, you may not get out again. He says, but educate yourself. He says, you've always been like a smart person. Start thinking and, 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 and fill your mind up with knowledge. He said, nobody can take that from you. And so all those moments that you go through in prison where you, you pan, um, you know, these high prices for comments or the phones and stuff like that, I would just think about you know, just being free, thinking about educating myself and just knowing that no one can take it from me. 
Now, I had a family member, and I think a lot of people, you know, have family members who are within this prison industrial complex. But I remember when I when I was younger, I would say, you know, well, we, why can't we come and visit you more? Because right. I, I loved this uncle of mine. Yeah. Um, and he said, you know, every time you come visit, I have to be strip searched. So, yeah. yes, I love to see you, but the process of getting to you it's humiliating. It's just humiliating and yeah. just so difficult. I'm happy when I get here, but going back in, right. I'm strip searched twice in one day. Right. So it, it's inhum- yeah. inhumane. They also make it difficult for the families that visit. So they want you to be as uncomfortable as possible so you don't come back and visit us. Wow. And so mindfulness mm-hmm. uh, within this, Dr. Gomez, and, and Elder Randolph, I'm coming to your call, but mindfulness in this space mm-hmm. where you're being treated in such an inhumane way, mm-hmm. do you think it can actually save people's lives? Oh, I think it might be the only one of the only things that can save people's lives because in those spaces of of inhumanity, um, y- what do you hold on to? What allows right. you to be present and to remember that there is still some goodness somewhere? Like you have to have something to be able to hold onto to ground you, and if you can ground yourself in this understanding, always remembering that you're connected to something bigger than just what is in front of you, that you're rooted to the ancestors, that we have had so many heroes and sheroes before us that went through similar things and even worse things. I mean, that requires a a, a remembering. And if we, so we need to remember that. In those moments when we're being humiliated, humiliated and treated like animals, how, what do we hold on to to know that we're connected to something larger than this person or these people who are in, in this process of dehumanizing who we are mm. and who don't know who are so disconnected from their own heart right. that they don't even have the the, the the sense in themselves to see what they how they're dehumanizing themselves right. and treating process, us that right? way. Oh, it's an I interaction. Mean, that's, what Dr. that's what Malcolm X said that you know in the process of you dehumanizing yeah. me, you're also dehumanizing Absolutely. yourself. Like it, right. it's a process. I'm going to get some of these callers in because the okay. callers are really interested in this conversation. I have Elder Ernest Randolph on the phone. Good morning, Elder. Good morning. God bless you. God bless you. Yeah, I um, I was a very angry individual, you know, and, uh, and and I found out, you know, back in the years when I was a teenager, you know, drinking alcohol, using barbiturates, and, mm. and uh, I mean, several fights with the police. And when I did my first sentence, I was 16 years old. I, I got a sentence for, um, you know, for a robbery, like strong-arm robbery. And then when I came back again, I, I was really still angry. I hated police, and uh, I, I used to get in fights in prison. I used to get in fights with the officers and was so angry one time. I literally threw some feces in one of them's face. Wow. And they beat me up and put me with, in what you call the hole, and they fed you a meal. every. They gave you bread and water every two days. The third day, you got a meal. And guess where the cell was? Right over top of the kitchen where you smell food. Mm. So the the next time I came back, I said, I need need to change this. And that's when I got involved, you know, getting my eighth grade education. I got my GED. I started picking up my first saxophone in prison. And then uh, about 28 years ago, at my shortest sentence, I made the decision. I said, look, I'm not going to die like this. Oh, wow. And and the blessing of it all is every prison that I've served time in, and I started as a musician in there, I've been back to every prison sharing a word of encouragement and wow, sharing okay. my gift. Oh, that's good. So, yeah. yeah, but I wound up being a volunteer chaplain, and they hired me temporarily and went back like 30 years and said that because I served some time in prison, I, and I was on the payroll. 
so they let me go. So. <laughs> thank you, thank you so stuff. much, Elder. So let, let's talk about that, Chris, yeah. before we go to Jean, who's on the line. Yeah, I want to speak the, about the yes, anger. Please do. Um, yes. So I th- I think it's natural and, and definitely you know especially for prisoners uh, and and returning citizens like you're going to be angry, but you know one of the things I realized when I was younger I think it maybe was through therapy um, or just like realizing like when I would get angry I would just like do stuff to get me in more trouble, is turning that anger into um into like positive energy, and just like you know when you're going through stuff when you're in prison I figured like I could just be upset, or I could just you know and then the prison guards are telling you you're never going home you had you know stuff going up, stuff that you could control. And I just felt like, you all right, well, I just got to pay everybody back by just being successful. So I just started studying harder. I just started mm-hmm. bettering myself. And just like, that's what you do. When you get upset, when you see something going on, just like do something positive, like to counter it, help some people out or whatever. But just don't let the anger just sit inside you and just do. It's like that doesn't, you know, that doesn't help anything. Let me go to Gene, and then I'm going to come back to Dr. Gomez. Gene, uh, good morning. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, and, uh, and hello, everybody. Uh, I'm blind, and what you're describing is the uh, <laughs> trials and tribulations of being imprisoned in blindness. Yeah. Um, I've been blind for 15 years. I'm, I'm, I'll be 70 this year in October, and wow. it, it's been a journey, um, um, but there's always, you know, there's always hope. And um, I'm trying to think of uh, the biblical, what's the other term? Uh, um, Contemplative that, practice? I, I, I'm, I'm, I can't, not, that's not it, but I can't think of it right now. Okay. I, I can scream at my wife and she'll tell me instantaneously because <laughs> uh, she studies the Bible, uh, you know, a lot. Uh, but my point, a friend of mine had a, uh, an accident. He was leaving Druid Hill Park um, to the part where the, the road that goes out by the swimming pool. Yes. Yeah. And, a, a, and it was a windy day, and the wind was so strong that it, it blew the gate closed and a pole literally went through his skull and his wow. brain. Wow. And he was in a coma. And I call him to talk radio shows, um, you know, quite often. And he, while he was in a coma, he heard my voice. Wow. <laughs> so when he came out of, the, out of the coma, you know, he was telling everybody, I know that guy, I know that guy. Long story short, he got back in touch with me. And prior to that, we were, you know, avid tennis players. I played tennis for 25 years and quite accomplished, to say, because I had a, a wonderful um you know, brilliant partner who carried me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, anyway, she, you know, but, but um, you know, so he got back in touch with me, and our conversation is what you, you know, what you guys are talking about, um, uh, you know, being, just being aware and being yes. thankful for the, the little things and take, you know, uh, you know, just literally, you know what I mean, like, uh, stop right. and hear yourself breathe and taking right. steps. I went right. to the trash can the other day. You know what I mean, and enjoying the the, the uh, cicada, and you know the sounds and so forth and so on. So, it, you know, you, even though you're in prison, you still right. can stay in touch with, right. you know, the, you know the reality and anything else. And it, I guess it's just hopefulness. It, it, there's you. always hope. Thank you so much, Gene. Dr. Mm-hmm. Gomez, I wanted to see if we can, and then Chris as well, pull this conversation just from talking about criminal justice in the prison system to talking about what's happening on the street. I mean, when mm-hmm. you talk about anger, when you talk about right. aggression, when you talk about you know, this major pushback, and when you're talking about feeling like you're being treated in an inhumane way, right. I mean, that's what we've been protesting in, in Baltimore for for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So, so how do we get young people and older folks as well <laughs> to practice this in their everyday lives, to yeah. just get through this system? of what we call, you know, the white privilege, white supremacy, the race. Like, how do you get through this? And can you transfer mindfulness when you don't, we're not in the prison, right. where you're away from everything and mm-hmm. all distractions to try to do this in your everyday life? 
Yeah, I, I think it's critical in everyday life uh, because the, the everyday life training is what is what readies us for when we come into those spaces of confrontation. So it's a, it's a different imprint in the way we, re we respond. Um, so people are keep asking, how are we going to change the system? And I, you know, my, my, my thoughts around this re more recently is that the system changes when every individual in the system changes themselves. Mm. This individual transformation is imperative. It's critical. It's necessary if we're going to have social transformation. We try to keep externalizing the problem. But part of this changing the system, when we meet this machine that's just out of control, is how do we as individuals interact with this machine? Are we aware enough? Are we awake mm -hmm. enough to see where we need to do it differently? Or are we uh, so asleep that we just fall in it into the rote path of the machine that's been set up for us? Are we awake enough to see what is our role in the system in changing it? <laughs> if we are so angry, then we are acting out of our emotion. We are unable to make clear decisions. We, we make decisions, again, on our reaction in that moment off of a trigger from a past. Instead of being clear-minded, have an observation so that we know what's the best way to act in this very moment. There's a great analogy about a house that's burning uh, that you can compare to anger. You know, your house is burning down and you run into the house and you see someone just ran away who just set the house on fire. What do you do? Well, some people will say, I'm going to go get that person who burnt my house, <laughs> right? And I'll tell you, there was a time when I would agree with that. But the other part of that is, if you do that, your house burns down. And you didn't catch the person anyway. And what do you have left? Well, you have nothing left. Anger is like that. When, we're, when we are angry, we want to go after the person we react who made us angry. We want to cause them harm. We feel like because we hurt, we're going to hurt back. But, but after that moment of uh, euphoria when we felt good because we made that person hurt, what do we have left? We don't really have anything left. We're still, we're still hurt. We're angry. The idea is that we don't run after the person who set the house on fire. The idea is that we stay in the house. We clear the house. We take care of it so the house doesn't burn down. <laughs> and that's the idea of how we deal with anger and the system is we have to figure out how we take care of ourselves Look, if the police officers practice mindfulness, they would approach each person they're interacting yes. with in a very different way, yes. okay? If we practice mindfulness as citizens, we would be interacting with officers in a di very different way. Right. This way, we're both taking responsibility for how we engage and what the outcome is. But right now, we're not doing any of that. We're right. externalizing things. Right, Chris, what do you think in terms of, of how to help young people and I don't right. want to say young boys or young girls we're saying young right. people right. as a whole right well it's, it's I can't help but to think about uh, my uncle growing up and I remember uh, like a young teenager he's in a very very violent neighborhood I used to carry a gun with me everywhere I went and every time he would come around he would just say you need to get out and, and get a job or you need to just cut some grass or you need to do something mm. and like he would always say that to me but like never showed me like how to do it right okay. and it's like so you fast forward um, now, you know, I'm working in Baltimore City. I used to be um, a director for a workforce development program. I used to be a community organizer, and now I'm an entrepreneur. And so uh, I, I tend to employ uh, folks, uh, some young folks, uh, who need help the most in the toughest neighborhoods in the city. And one of the things I try to do is I lead by example. So when I'm working with my labor force, you know, I'm also the supervisor, but also a mentor. I also talk about opportunities. And, you know, sometimes 
you know, you got you got to give someone some tough love. You know, we, we look at our situations, especially here in Baltimore uh, with the police. Um, we look at um, the lack of job opportunities right. and stuff. And, and oftentimes, you know, some of my young brothers and sisters, they come to work and they're upset. And so we have the, these conversations. You know, um, an example, one of my young guys called me a couple of days ago. It was just like, I can't come in and work because I got to take care of something. I got to get pamphlets. Like, I need stuff, like, right now. Wow. And I said, brother, coming to work is getting the pamphlets. <laughs> right. <It's> <laughs> like, this is how you take, care, to take right. care of your business is by coming to work. You can't say, oh, I'm not coming in to work because I got to get pamphlets. You need wow. to come in to work. That's how you get the pamphlets. Right. You got to have those conversations. And I think we need more men and women to, uh, to be there for our young folks and not just say, all right, well, you fired. Talk right. to them and explain to them why this is important and, like, what we up against and just try to lead people, show people a way up. Uh, we have Donna on the phone. Uh, Donna, good morning. Welcome to the Mark Steiner Show. How are you doing? I'm well. Excellent show. Thank you. Um, and, you know, my focus is always on our women, our uh, women who are stressed out, um, who are new mothers or oh, yeah. are mothers. And that, that when you look at, when you look, go back to Dr. Frances Welsing, she had a, a chart in her book. Mm-hmm. And white institutionalized racism was at the top, and then right. she branched it down to women, the male, the females, and then the children, and then everything else underneath that. If we don't correct and start saving, getting these women straight from emotional, mental health issues, that anger, that frustration, which they and them in turn uh, take it out on the children, who then in turn become a product of our. Um, our system of anger where they latching out to not only at their families but everybody else, we're not going to correct this. These women need more help. We need more resources, and we need to change the institutionalized social service, human service system that keeps them in trap mm-hmm. and keeps them not functioning in a better way so that their children will have a better life. Because having children in poverty is one of the worst traumas you could ever have put our children through. And I wanted you guys to talk about that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Donna. I want to come to you, Dr. Gomez, um, because I know in, and when I pulled up some of the information on what they do in women's prisons, mm-hmm. some of the activities they talk about are sitting and, and walking mm-hmm. and doing both of those, like you're meditating, doing mindful yoga, mm-hmm. doing focused attention on their breathing, which sounds great when someone's leading you. So mm-hmm. for women who may be going through some of the things that Donna talked about, stressed out about trying to get your kids ready for school, because that's real. I mean, school right. starts next week. And if you don't have the basic support, you're going to have a challenging time. I think right. of what Nikki Giovanni said. She always felt bad. She said, you know, why should my kid have to have skates and everybody else has a bike? Mm-hmm. So you want your kid to, right. quote, have a bike, whatever that bike is, whether it's mm-hmm. Jordans or a new backpack, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And if you don't have access to the funds to get that, it's a stressful time. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. would you suggest women who are in this situation do? How do they get started? I, I think a big part of this is coming back into community, that is having networks of support where we can be with other people who are also facing the same challenges like the caller just shared and you just shared, and also be able to reconnect and ground each other in really what are the priorities that we're trying to put forth here mm-hmm. about the job versus getting the pampers, right? right. So I think going back into the, the, the way we think about family community networks, having two or three people who we feel who feel similarly who might help remind us that 
Um, you know, maybe we need to stop and breathe when we're getting stressed, when we're getting ang angry. What do we do now? I mean, I just had a conversation with my mom last night who was chewing nails about my brother. Mm. Uh, my brother's uh, mentally ill and, and has some substance abuse issues. And, um, you know, she says he's the, he's the most difficult thing in her life. And, and she was chewing nails and, and we were having this conversation. And I said, you know, we, you just, you, can you stop and breathe? Can you see that your anger doesn't make it any better for him? Mm -hmm. And that yelling at him when he's not in a state to understand what you're saying doesn't really help him. And all it does is make you more angry and then it makes him more angry. And then we get into this really, really difficult place. So I think and my, my, my suggestion to her is always, do, are you talking to, <coughs> are, you, are you reaching out to other people who can help you look into that, into what you're feeling right now. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting everyone needs to run to a support group because that takes time too, okay. and, and people don't have time. But what I'm suggesting is being able to connect with one or two people okay. where when you're in that moment of stress and you're feeling like, man, this is just crazy and all I can do is respond in the way that I've seen other people respond, which is often from moments of anger because like Chris said, we don't have a lot of role models because we we've been right. left we've, we a lot of our our, our, our connections of, of modeling have been left out right is to try to find someone to connect with so baltimore and beyond mindfulness community which is part of um, the group i'm a part of which is uh, uh presenting the panel discussion tomorrow night at uh, st Winceslas hall um you know we're we're we meet one every sunday for we have a poc mindfulness group sit Okay. And we have an activist mindfulness group sit. And there are other mindfulness and meditation groups. And there are contemplative prayer groups. And your prayer, your regular church group. These are places where wherever, and it doesn't have to be a church group. It can be a yoga practice. It can be right. a okay. relaxation practice. But are we, I mean, and this is where I think the self-care and the healing part of this movement for, for change comes in. I think the most revolutionary act is taking care of ourselves and loving ourselves. Okay. We don't do yeah. that. And as black and brown women, we definitely don't do yeah. that. We put everyone before us. So how do we find the time, niche the time in our daily life as an urgent care thing to take care of ourselves as we're taking care of everything else around us? And this is kind of a stressful time. Chris, I wanted to ask you, uh, I'm thinking about teachers. Okay. You know, who are starting back tomorrow mm -hmm. with training, but they have kids coming back. Mm -hmm. When I was a teacher in Baltimore City and my students came into the classroom, I'm like, why are you not engaging? Why are you mm -hmm. not listening? And a couple of students broke it down for me. You don't know what we had to go through to get here. Right. What happened last night? What happened this morning? Like, you don't even know that. So how does a teacher here in Baltimore City, what, what would you suggest that they do right. to help their students start off the school year kind of practicing mindfulness? Very, very important um, topic, mm -hmm. and I speak about this occasionally. I think it's 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 important for teachers um, to understand what students go through. Um, I, I remember like going to class and hungry, or just going to class, you know, and my friend was shot and killed the day before. And mm -hmm. I think it's important for teachers to understand, especially um, you know, with, with young students here in Baltimore City, what we go through, you know, every day. And so by understanding. You know, a teacher won't uh, diagnose a student as being ADHD or just suspending them, but, but maybe getting them counseling and help that they need and being able to identify those things. But, like, that's a very important part of being a teacher is understanding where the students come from. And if I could add in, um, so one of the uh, our guests tomorrow for the panel discussion at 630 is the Holistic Life Foundation here, actually, in Baltimore, in West Baltimore. Here are three young men. 
um, black and brown men who are working in West Baltimore with some of the schools in doing after-school program around mindfulness, meditation, okay. and yoga. And they've been working with kids who come in and they teach them yoga, and then the, th the kids become the leaders teaching peer, oh peer teaching. Okay. And there have been some studies on their program by Hopkins and other researchers that show that the kids who go through this, this after-school program with, with Holistic Life Foundation, they have less anger, they're more attentive in school, they're more prepared to learn. They they have more peer support. They're getting along better with their peers, and the teachers respond that they're also they're not as as act, they're not acting out as much in school. Right. And this isn't just in Baltimore. This is all over the country. We're seeing this difference in when kids have this time to be with each other, to b sit and just breathe for five minutes, come back to their breath, and just be a little still, so they can see. And, and kids describe, and you know, kids are the best way. They'll just, th you know, they tell you exactly what's going on in their head. They s you, you ask them, well, why didn't you get angry like you did before? They say, well, I had time to think about it. That mindfulness. That's right. <laughs> that, that's Very right. Intentional. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he didn't call it mindfulness, but you know, he said he had time to think about it. So that that time, that moment to think about it, that breath that stopped him, and that moment to think about it, made him have a different action. And that's what we're talking about, not just with children, not just with teachers, but with everybody. Well, we want to invite people to go and join Baltimore and Beyond Mindfulness Community for Social Activists, which is on Facebook. Mm -hmm. They can also find out information about the panel tomorrow night at 6.30 yes. p.m. I know Chris Wilson's going to be on the panel. Dr. Gomez, you'll be there as well mm -hmm. with quite a few other people, as well as a group of three men who go around teaching yoga and mindfulness in the Baltimore City Schools. We just appreciated having you here today. Thank you both, Chris. Thank you, Dr. Gomez. Thanks the Mark Steiner me. Show, thank you. Thank you for having us. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's show to talk at steinershow.org or you can send me a tweet at, at kwhitehead, that's K-A-Y-E Whitehead. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for Cool Jazz and more WEAA 88.9 FM is the voice of the community. This is Dr. K sitting in for Mark Steiner. Let this be the time that you speak up and speak out. Your silence will not protect you, shield you, or cover you. Someone has got to change the world. Why not let it be you? Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>